Hello and welcome to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We are taking a break from producing new shows over the summer, but in the meantime, I hope you will enjoy a trip back down memory lane with some interviews that we conducted throughout 2019. On today's show, we have Claire Ferruja talking to Gabrielle De Silva uh, about air pollution and what air quality actually means for real people like you and me. And Claire will also be talking later in the show to Dr. Lyndon Ashcroft about the IPCC report on climate change and what all of that means. It's a pretty hefty report, so she gets down to the nitty-gritty with Lyndon Ashcroft in that interview. Stay tuned for those stories later in the show. been to a foreign city and thought the air smelled a little different to Australia. Maybe there were fumes of diesel or woody charcoal smells of coal stoves. Or maybe you've been lucky enough to see a sunset abroad but haven't really visualised it because of the smog. With the World Health Organisation estimating of 4 million premature deaths from poor air quality worldwide, it's an issue more important than ever. But how is air quality different in Australia? Here to talk us through the facts is Dr. Gabrielle De Silva, Senior Lecturer in Chemical Engineering at the University of Melbourne. Gabrielle, welcome to Lost in Science. Hello, thank you for having me. So, Gabrielle, tell us, what does bad air quality really mean? Well, I guess at the simplest level, it means that there are either gases or there are particles in the air that are unhealthy for you. And bad air quality means different things in different places. So there's lots of different things that could be in the air that could hurt your health and different, you know, every city has a, an air quality problem. It's just a fact of living in a you know, big urban area. Uh, but what that problem is or what the biggest problems are varies from place to place. So how, how does, you know, various types of air quality in, in different cities, how does it affect human health? 
there's a whole range of mechanisms and we're still learning about different things that they can do to our bodies. But the main ones are that they impact our cardiovascular system. So they can contribute to stroke and heart disease. They can contribute to particularly lower respiratory infections, uh, which are you know, particularly da- dangerous in the elderly population. And with lung cancer, a lot of cases of lung cancer can be attributed back to air pollution. And there are still new things that we're learning about it. Right. Can you sort of tease out that data and sort of say, okay, well, there's a certain type of air pollution that's responsible for this or... Well, we know, yeah, yeah, so we know the main culprits. So uh, the big one is very fine particulate matter. Uh, So we tend to track PM 2.5, which are particles that are smaller than two and a half micrometres, so you know, much finer than a piece of hair, for instance. So these are formed by a number of different ways, but whatever they are, these very fine particles, you breathe them in, they go deep into your lungs, and then they start to affect your body negatively. Another big one is ozone. So you know, we all, we all know about the ozone layer, and up high, high in the atmosphere, ozone's great because it filters out UV radiation, but surface-level ozone caused by pollution from cars, coal-fired power stations, they tax your lungs. They're two of the big pollutants that we track. Right. You mentioned it around the world, but in terms of air quality and air pollution in Australia, how do we stack up? It's a bit of a mixed scorecard. So I think people people associate Australia with, you know, lovely clear blue skies and uh, clean beaches, and we think that we have, um, you know, we, li- we like to think that we have a fairly good environmental quality, and we do in part. So there's a lot of the biggest cities in the world have much worse air pollution problems than us. So particularly in China and India and places like Hong Kong, Malaysia, they have really significant health problems and big economic problems caused by their low air quality. Uh, so we're not quite there, but we do have, particularly in the major cities, days that, you know, there'll be days every year where the air quality gets bad and for people that have respiratory problem problems or particularly sensitive to poor air quality, they're really going to find find that impacts upon them. And it's estimated, so from government statistics, that about 2,500 deaths per year across Australia could be contributed to air pollution. And this puts it somewhere on par with about the number of fatalities that we see in motor vehicle accidents. So these are both significant problems. And maybe, you know, if someone falls victim to one of these diseases that's exacerbated or caused by air pollution, it, you can't really tie it back to, to the cause. Um, so it's not, it's not quite as visible as some other you know, major public health issues that we have in the country. Right. And in terms of how we monitor the air quality, is this, um, I imagine, you know, Australia's a really big place. It would be quite difficult to get an accurate assessment. It is. That's true. Uh, so the government uh, in each state pushes down to the environmental regulator the responsibility to set up monitoring stations and monitor for the biggest pollutants. So they'll track particle levels, they'll look at ozone, and they'll also look at uh, nitrogen oxides and maybe sulfur oxides, which um, cause ozone, which contribute to the ozone and the particle uh, pollution problem. But there are two things to, to consider there. So how extensive is the network of monitoring? And then what are the levels at which they say, okay, this, this particular pollutant is now too high and we need to do something about it? And there's going to be those so submissions disclosed to input into... 
States environment ministers reconsidering the levels that we consider uh, pollutants to be harmful. So there's, uh, we have these national air pollution... So they're sort of like standards or something standards, like that. Yes, yeah. and, and we actually, compared to, so for instance, USA, much of mainland Europe, New Zealand... Uh, in Australia, we have actually quite lax standards. So oh. in most cases, they're worse than what the World Health Organisation recommends we should have. Uh, and we're hoping that we see, you know, when the, when the environment ministers get together later this year, that we, we see these, these thresholds ratcheted up. And hopefully they expand the network of monitoring. So they go, you know, maybe not just into the big cities, but into some of the, particularly on the urban fringes where you have mixed industrial residential zones, mm. they tend to be prone to bad pollution around uh, coal-fired power stations. So the emissions control on Australia's power stations uh, on an international level is abysmal. Uh, there is, you know, we're basically where a lot of the rest of the world was at in the 70s and 80s. There's just things that we're not controlling for. This impacts you know, most acutely on those regions. And then we also need a way of enforcing you know, if there are infringements. So if air quality gets too bad, do we have a mechanism to take action and to go and, you know, clamp down on the biggest polluters that are, that are contributing to that dirty, toxic air? And in terms of technologies that may be, I guess, being adopted by other countries around the world to improve air quality, do you have any um, standout sort of innovations? Well, there's actually... We know... We know we know where the pollution's coming from. So it's coming from cars, it's coming from burning fuel. And there's actually pretty simple measures to take, uh, which we just need to do it. So the technology to clean the emissions from power stations has been there for a long time. It's, it's easy to do, but it costs money. Uh, with cars, you know, there are cars that are more fuel efficient. For instance, don't use diesel, which tends to be a dirtier fuel. There are fuel, you know, we could clean our fuel so that it is less prone to producing emissions. And so there are a number of things that we, we know, you know, we know what we need to do. We just need to go and do it. Now, you just wrote a news piece talking about the pollution pods in Melbourne's Treasury Gardens, which um, is part of Science Gallery's disposable exhibition. Did you get a chance to see it? Yes, I did. So I went down there Saturday night. And can you talk us through it? So, yeah, so the pollution pods, this uh, really great piece of installation art that, gives us a chance to kind of walk around the world and experience, but in the kind of safe, recreated way, what it might be to breathe in the air from London or from New Delhi or from Beijing uh, or these other cities that have very acute air quality problems and they have each their own different air quality problems just to uh, give us a bit of a, an idea of what the, that air might look like, what it might smell like. Um, or even taste like when you so if you breathe in ozone, <laughs> you can kind of taste it in your uh, in your mouth and in your lungs. Well, Dr. Gabrielle De Silva, thank you so much for joining us and talking us through air quality, air pollution, and I guess I mean in a certain extent how lucky we are in Australia, but also um, how we can improve things. Oh, it's been my pleasure, and um, absolutely, I think you know we are quite lucky here, but we also shouldn't be complacent about air pollution and air quality. Thanks, Gabrielle. That was Claire Ferrugia talking to Dr. Gabrielle De Silva about air quality around the world. Stay tuned to hear Claire's interview with Dr. Lyndon Ashcroft 
about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that came out last year in 2019. There has been another IPCC report delivered to us all about climate change. And I don't know if you've had a chance to read it, but I haven't read it end to end, that's for sure. So instead, I have invited the awesome and wonderful Dr. Lyndon Ashcroft, climatologist, lecturer at University of Melbourne. Lyndon, welcome to Lost in Science. Great to be here, Claire. Let's start with what the IPCC is. Yeah, sure. So the IPCC, you hear that acronym bandied around and I think even some climate scientists struggle to remember what it is. It's a bit like CSIRO. You're like, well, what does the I stand for again? (laughs) Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So this is a panel that was set up in the 80s, in 1988, with the World Meteorological Organization and the UN's Environmental Program. So all countries that are members of either of those organizations, pretty much all countries of the world, are a part of this. And the goal of the IPCC is to collect the best understanding we have of climate change, its impacts, the science behind it, possible options for addressing it, possible risks and adaptation and mitigation, right? So it doesn't actually do new science. The IPCC don't do new science. Their job is to review all the other science that's done all around the world and pull it together in one piece of information. So the world has the best understanding of what's going on. So it's it's like a, the literature review, like, you know, the mother of all literature reviews. Yeah, it's the mother of all literature reviews <laughs> in every sense of the word, in that scientists from all over the world are involved. You have to apply to join the IPCC, even though it's voluntary. I mean, hopefully your organisation where you work, your government organisation or your university realises what a privilege it is to be selected as one of the best climate scientists. And it's not just climate scientists, there's social scientists as well and environmental economists and people who can look at this massive problem from every different angle. So you you volunteer to take part. There's quite a few Australian scientists who have been involved in the last 30 or so years, and it's a lot of meetings, a lot of late-night teleconferences, lots. <laughs> I've got a few f- colleagues at the moment who are going through the process, and they've just come back from a big meeting in France where it's go, 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 and then they have midnight meetings once every few weeks with all their different co-authors, and there are lots of different sections. And so the IPCC... Initially, its mandate was to bring together every six years or so a giant assessment report with a few different sections about what are we seeing, what are the climate models predicting for the future, how can we understand what's natural and what's human-induced, and different adaptation strategies or different things that we can do to help minimise the risks. So we have these. The last one was the fifth assessment report, and the next one, the sixth assessment report, I think is coming out in 2021. But then they also have special reports that are focused on particular topics. So they had one that was about the difference between 1.5 degrees of warming above 
pre-industrial levels, so if the globe warmed by about 1.5 degrees, versus what would happen if it warmed up to 2 degrees. We're at about 1.1 degree above um, pre-industrial, pre-fossil fuel burning times. So this is a spe- one of those special reports and I can imagine, you know, when you say you have to get together all of the information including all the impacts and I imagine there would be a lot of things to read. Yeah, absolutely. So this report that came out last month, it's about climate change and land essentially. This is it's like a two-parter. I think this one that's come out in August is about climate change and land and then there's another one that's coming out in September about climate change and the oceans and ice or the cryosphere which is the ice ice world, the component of the earth that's made of ice. Uh, So this one is about the land. Mm. And I I think there were about 107 authors. It took them around two years to pull all this information together, 7,000 different documents that they read and reviewed and summarised. And then what happens is you write a draft or these authors write a draft and then it goes out to review and anyone who's an expert in those fields can help review it. And so they had something like 28,000 separate comments that they had to incorporate to make sure that this document really is our best understanding of what's happening to the land and how the land fits into the climate change picture. So when you talk about, I guess, climate change and land, like what what are they really talking about? Well, the way I understand it, and I'm, I should say I'm not a land climate expert, but the way I understand what I've read of the report is that it's looking at the role of human impact on the land. So it's about 70% of the surface of the land of the earth, right? Which you kind of think, oh, the land, it doesn't make up that much of the world, but it's everywhere that we live, you know. I don't know how many mermaid listeners there are. Probably not a lot, but it's <laughs> everywhere. There might be some there people be on some. boats. Hi to everyone on boats, but they probably come back to land afterwards. They probably come back to land. We get the vast majority of our food from land. We get all of our fresh drinking water from land. And 70% of the land that exists in the world has been touched by us. Wow. Or is being touched by us at the moment. So this report was looking at what role does that play in either exacerbating climate change, making it worse, or sort of offsetting it and what what have we seen in the past and what might it look like in the future. You are listening to Lost in Science and you are listening to Claire Ferrugia interviewing Dr Lyndon Ashcroft about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that came out in 2019 and what it actually means. Back to Claire and Lyndon. So what is this report actually telling us then? Well, I guess it's telling us probably all the things that you expect it to tell us already, that we are over-exploiting the land. There's a lot of soil that is being lost. More soil is being lost than soil is being rejuvenated. From something like rainfall? Like yeah, from, so you're from erosion? This and- is the thing. It's all It's all a bit of a feedback loop, right? Mm. So with climate change... The weather patterns that we're seeing are changing. So it's raining where it maybe wasn't raining so much anymore. We've got our climate zones shifting. So the regions that are deserts are kind of moving or expanding. We're getting heavier rainfall events, which can often make runoff, more runoff, right? So more soil is is being being lost lost that that way. way. Uh, I think the report also mentioned an increase in dust storms and these kinds of things. But it's kind of a two-way, it's a bit of a feedback loop because you've got climate change affecting the way that the soil 
works and the land works, but then you've also got changes to the soil help like affecting climate change if that makes sense right I mean soil um, can hold a lot of carbon as mm-hmm. well right and Absolutely. so if you've got less less um, soil on the top of the earth then you've got less ability to be able to hold that that carbon or be that carbon sink yeah that's right that's how I kind of understand it and it is this bit of a it's a bit of a two-way street right it's a lose-lose situation because we've got climate change making the land more degraded we've got these weather patterns changing so heavier rainfall events I mean there's more runoff and more soil being taken away and we get more dust storms and areas that are getting drier they're, they're coming more like deserts fertile areas becoming less fertile, which is called desertification. It's another fancy word there. For an awful thing. For an awful thing. But then, so that's climate change is doing that to the soil and to the plants. But then also when that happens, the plants are less able to help Mm. us combat climate change. There are fewer nutrients in the soil and the plants aren't able to soak up as much CO2. And so that makes climate change worse, if that makes sense. So it's kind of, it's a pretty nasty lose-lose situation. And the report talks a lot about how much has already happened, what we're seeing in, you know, it's a bunch of scary statistics really about how much land is being used too much uh, for pastures and for heavy cropping and unsustainable agricultural practices. And how about in terms of what sort of agricultural practices we use and what we choose to grow on the land that we have? Yeah, this is a really interesting thing, particularly when it when we think about keeping our carbon dioxide or our greenhouse gases, not just carbon dioxide, but methane and nitrous oxide and other kinds of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, trying to minimise those. We often think about, oh, electricity, we need to move towards solar or wind power and those kinds of things. But there's lots of different sectors that contribute to the amount of greenhouse gases that we have in the atmosphere. And the agricultural sector contributes about a quarter of what we see. So land use from uh, grazing of different animals, mainly cows, uh, and then also crops, heavy agricultural crops that need a lot of irrigation and these kinds of things, that can really add up to the the emissions that are because of human behaviour in the atmosphere. Does that mean we should start looking at what sort of different foods we can produce, what's going to be a, I guess, a better agricultural system and um, better food production for us or... I, th- I think so. The authors of the report are very clear they don't want to tell people what to eat, but the science is telling us that, A, we already waste a lot of food. Like a third of the food that is produced or that is grown is lost or wasted globally. That is an incredibly high number. It is. 30%. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And also in the last 40 years or so, since the 60s, we've seen a doubling per person in the amount of meat and vegetable oil that is produced. So it's essentially rich people are eating more meat and more fat and it's bad for them, right? Because obesity, there's 2 billion overweight and obese people in the world, while people in the developing countries, which other countries that are sadly being mostly affected by these changing in weather patterns and reduction in the nutrient level of the soils, are there's a lot of uh, undernourished people in the, those parts of the world. So I think having a a real look at what we eat, there's lots of different there's lots of different discussions around that. I'm not pretending that it's a simple problem, but this report is suggesting that we need to 
think and change, think about and change the way that we use the land, A, because it's making climate change worse and B, because we can't stick to the Paris Agreement goals, the targets that we've set as a planet without considering this sector. What are some of the, I guess, recommendations and take-homes that the authors have left us with? My reading of it is that they've tried quite hard to give some near-term goals that we can work towards and some long-term strategies. And again, I mean, you, you probably know them. It's being sustainable. It's, it's using sustainable practices. The report says that the quicker, and I think all the IPCC reports say this, the earlier we can act, we need to act right now, right now, and all of the ideas that we have need to be scaled up massively. So reduction in meat consumption, uh, reforesting of a lot of areas. I've heard of some great examples where they're suggesting that places in the tropics in particular where you could revegetate the land for forests and then incorporate into the forest some cacao plants, right? So you've got instead of uh, homogenous or like one type of one type like of crop, type yeah. Instead thing. of a monoculture type thing, you've got naturally variating plants that you can still get money from, right? You can still harvest those the the cacao and still and still earn a living, but that's improving biodiversity. This is the thing. A lot of the suggestions that they're making in this report are win win. Like it's co co benefiting. It's good for the planet and it's good for economies and it's good for societies as well. So. Thinking about a sustainable shift in agriculture, reduction in meat consumption, um, using of biofuel crops, using using those sustainably, but investing in those kinds of areas. There's lots of advice in here for policies. They do suggest that it needs to be done at a local level. I mean, people need to make decisions at a community level, and then that also needs to be supported, obviously higher up the chain. But having a every country needs to do this is probably not the way that change is going to happen unfortunately. Well, Dr. Lyndon Ashcroft, thank you so much for coming in and talking us through the IPCC report, the special report on climate change and land use. And um, it would be wonderful to get you in to talk us through uh, the next instalment on um, the oceans as well. Always, always a pleasure to be here, Claire. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost Lost in science.
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.